to you by me, author Liz Harfel. Country Women's Wisdom is a podcast sharing inspiring true stories, treasured vintage recipes and useful household hints. It draws on the practical know-how and everyday experience of Australian women, taking on lessons hard won from living through world wars, economic depression, natural disaster, isolation and personal tragedy. They learn how to make a little go a long way while nurturing themselves and their families. In this episode, we will be celebrating all things country shows. I'm going to be sharing some stories from Mullaney in Queensland. And as a special treat, I'll be interviewing Kate Schulz, the president of a remarkable organisation called Next Generation. And to finish, there will be a recipe for Afghan biscuits, a very traditional treat from one of my favourite show cooks. had gone according to plan, this weekend the community at Mullaney in Queensland would be gathering for their annual show. So I'd like to share with you a story that comes from that show, and it's about two remarkable women, Enid Cox and Monica Smith, who I was very fortunate to meet when I was researching the Australian Blue Ribbon Cookbook. Monica Smith was in her late 80s when I interviewed her, and she told me about her life and her love for cooking and for her local show. Monica was the youngest of five children and she started life on a dairy farm near Gympie. But her father was a restless sort of bloke and they moved often, first to a farm at Kingaroy and then to a block out west near Roma where they hung on grimly through 13 months without a drop of rain. And then when Monica was 16, he took on a fruit growing property not far from Mullaney. She recalls him working very hard and her alongside him to get everything nice and settled, and then when it was time to start taking things a bit easier, he would up and sell again. So by the time they moved to the fruit-growing farm, Monica's mother Nell was an invalid suffering very badly from arthritis and her two sisters were considerably older and had already married and left home when she was born, so it was left to Monica to keep things running. At the age of 11, she became responsible for doing the housework and cooking and helping to milk the cows. Her responsibilities increased after war broke out and her two brothers joined the military. Monica finally got to settle in one place when she married Lawrence. The couple raised a family of five and they grew vegetables, tropical fruit and ginger for a living. Monica loved cows, so she bought a small herd of 12 which she milked every day, helping to sustain the farm through some very tough times. She was 77 when she reluctantly gave it up, but 11 years later when I met her, she was still on the farm. She was still cooking for the Mullaney Show, having won the aggregate trophy about 15 times, which is an extraordinary effort. She told me that she loved doing it because she loved the show and the people that were involved. She found them friendly and supportive. Monica started entering the show in the 1950s, encouraged by Lawrence, who was probably more excited than she was when she won her first prize. At one stage, she entered everything in the schedule, taking advantage of a ready supply of eggs and fresh milk and cream from the farm. 
She told me that it took two cars to take all of the entries to the show. There were about 30 cakes and bottles of pickles and jams, and outside the cookery things like embroidery. Monica didn't remember learning to cook much from her mother, but she was encouraged by an auntie, her Aunt Annie, who lived in Melbourne, and developed her culinary skills by attending lessons at a local institute one day a week. Monica says she was a wonderful cook and would often send her recipes that she could then put to use, and I featured one of them in the Blue Ribbon Cookbook for a very unusual and old-fashioned fruited supper cake. Monica died in 2018, only a few weeks before the next show was due to be held. She was 93 years old. In her memory, her family has donated a trophy, which is now given to the person who comes runner-up for the trophy that she won so often for the most points in the section. And the idea is that it will encourage someone who might not necessarily be the most successful competitor, but has tried very hard, to keep entering. What I set out to do in the Australian Blue Ribbon Cookbook was to tell the stories of individual cooks from a variety of shows. But in Milani, I ended up including two women because both of the stories were equally fascinating and I just couldn't make a choice. The other person I wrote about was Enid Cox. Now, Enid is 99 and still alive. When I met her, she was living in her own home, and my eyes were immediately drawn to an absolutely magnificent wood stove that sat at the heart and soul of her house. Enid told me about the days when she and other women in the district catered for people attending the show. Now, slap-out lunches prepared by the women of the district served at ridiculously low prices are a country show tradition. But the conditions that they worked in were a far cry from what you'll find in many halls now, even in small districts where they've often upgraded them to feature commercial standard kitchens. Enid remembers the days just after World War II when a team of women sweated over open fires to boil beetroot and plum puddings to serve at the show. We'd be crying our eyes out with the smoke, she told me. Patrons paid about $2 for two courses of cold meat and salads, what my friend Peter Gers likes to call a cold collation, and they also got a pudding and custard for that money, or jelly for the children. The volunteers chopped mountains of salad ingredients and mixed buckets of homemade dressings to meet the demand. Enid could remember shelling eggs until she looked like them. And then after three days of feeding the judges and the show patrons, they were expected to provide supper for about 300 people at the show ball. Enid confessed that she would often sneak in wearing a pair of slippers because her feet would be aching so much by that time. She was one of nine children and she grew up at Kenilworth where her parents were keen volunteers and exhibitors at the local show. When she was only 17, she married a Mullaney boy, Alf. His family has, had always helped at the show too. So when we moved here, I just carried on from there, she told me. Enid prepared entries for the cookery and the flower sections, while her husband volunteered as a chief steward in the cattle section. They juggled it all between milking twice a day on the dairy farm that they'd carved out of the bush while raising 11 children mostly without the aid of electricity, which was only connected to the house when the eighth child was born. In the early years, Enid and the children also worked on the farm, helping to milk the cows, dig potatoes and feed pigs, while Alf helped as best as he could in between shifts earning extra money at the local sawmill. Enid told me she hadn't had an easy life, but it was a good one. 
And while it might be expected that cooking would become a chore with so much to do and so many mouths to feed, Enid always liked it, although she does admit she had a lot to learn when they first married. Enid's mother taught her how to make bread and scones, but she died when her daughter was only 14, so she only brought a few basic recipes with her. And if she made a dud, she used to feed it to their old blue dog. She said they had the fattest cattle dog in the district. Even in her 90s, in the week leading up to the show, Enid would bake scones and make at least four double sponges a day, which she took to the showground as a morning tea treat for the volunteers working to set things up. So she was a very popular contributor to the annual show. For most of Australia, show season comes in the spring or the early months of autumn. And there are still something like 600 shows that are held around Australia. A remarkable testament to the importance of this tradition in our culture and communities. In Queensland, the timing of the shows is a little different. For them, their main season runs from January right through to August, and it culminates in the ECA, Brisbane's Royal Show, which is an institution in Queensland that draws hundreds of thousands of people. But there are still something like 127 country shows that are run across the state, organised by more than 13,000 volunteers. And they range from very small local events in communities that only boast a population of a few hundred people or less right through to some of the larger cities in the state. So the coronavirus shutdowns have particularly affected the Queensland show community and dozens and dozens of towns have missed out on celebrating what is for many of them the biggest annual event of the year. So to find out the impact that these closures have had on the Queensland show community, I've recorded an interview with Kate Schultz. Kate is a school teacher in training and an extremely keen competitor in the poultry section of Queensland shows, but she's also president of a remarkable organisation called Next Generation, which has had a considerable effect on involving the next generation of people in organising and supporting Queensland's country shows, and I think has played a major part in this tradition continuing so strongly in that state. You might think there's plenty to be gloomy about, but as Kate explains, that's not necessarily the case. It's, it's obviously a very tricky time for our communities and show societies and, and their annual local shows, often the heart of the community and, and particularly rural and regional areas where everyone has, has a chance to get together. But the really wonderful thing about people involved in shows is that we're very good at adapting. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's true. There's, there's never a show that happens without a small bump in the road. Um, and show society members and volunteers are incredibly good at finding new pathways and avenues and solutions. So a really great um, initiative that a couple of shows have been taking up are online shows. And I actually just this afternoon received my little ribbon and certificate for participating in the Gundawindi online show. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> so what did you get those for, Kate? 
Oh, something ridiculous. Um, they, we entered the online pet show. Um, normally we'd uh, exhibit poultry, but this year we did a photo of uh, one of our ducklings and, and a photo of our dog wearing a silly hat. So it, it's things that are just, it's getting people still in the, in the wonderful spirit of a show, um, but obviously social distancing. But it's really great because it's sharing the interest. And keeping um, the spirit alive. Definitely, and potentially reaching people who haven't had the opportunity before. Um, a really cool thing that another local show on the Darling Downs has done um, for our sub-chamber finals, um, we weren't able to host them obviously, but we did an online young judges. So we had an online young judges for cattle and also for poultry, and um, the trophies have been posted off today, and we actually had the the post online viewed over 10,000 times. That's incredible. And, and it reached all over Australia. Well, I guess that's the thing um, with the, having an online platform for these competitions and, and the virtual shows is that you don't have to live close by to participate. It is, yeah. And it's great because um, I think a lot of times we find particularly our young people, when we think about our next generation, a lot of the time our young people may have to move away from their hometown and they love to come back for their local show. But this way they're still able to engage with the show spirit. They're still able to stay safe in their homes, even though they may be thousands of kilometres away. So it's really exciting how adaptable our show societies have been. Do you think there's room for some of these ideas to have a life once the shows themselves can can reopen to keep some of these ideas? I'd love to see that. Uh, I think it would really depend on different show societies in different areas, but I think we'll definitely see more live streaming of events. Show societies are quite good at that. Um, however, I think uh, in years to come, having live stream of our events will mean that uh, people from all over will be able to engage and support their local show. One of the things I'm interested in, Kate, is where your love of shows and your commitment to them came from. Uh, can you remember your first show and how did it all start? Um, I can't actually remember it because I was too little. <laughs> I was one of those classic little show brats in the pavilion. Um, I come from a family of show volunteers and generations of show volunteers. I grew up, my mum, the pavilion coordinator at my local show um, at Mudruba on the Gold Coast and uh, I would be stapling the, ex, um, the, different, <laughs> the different cards to ribbons and I would be um, getting under everyone's feet and she just used to say, Kate, go and see the poultry men. So I'd waddle over <laughs> to the chook shed and I just had the most beautiful three old guys who took me under their wing, pardon the pun. <laughs> I actually met my husband at the Gunduindi Poultry Shed. I was the judge and he was my steward and there definitely wasn't any bias. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fabulous story. That's a fabulous story. As you grew up, I, I'm gathering you started competing in your own right as well as being a volunteer. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. So I, I was about six or seven when I bought my first trio of old English game bantams at the Mudrabar show. So they're, they're a type of um, poultry. They're a breed yeah. of chook. And 
I began exhibiting and I was very proud to take home a few ribbons, a couple of birds of shows, and it really kept me going. So you were hooked. I found myself, yeah, I found myself going to shows all over my region, loving it. And then eventually when I was old enough, I became a showgirl myself, um, found myself up at Eka um, with 10 other amazing young women, managed to take home the sash and I travelled traveled Queensland. So I ended up actually in Queensland, we have a 127 shows um, each year. And in my 12 months, my position, I traveled to, I think it was 43 of them. So that's more, more than one show a weekend a lot of the time as well. So. That's a huge commitment. So I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but, you know, for for women who are listening from city areas and are from outside Queensland, they may not have an understanding of what the Showgirl competition is about and, and think it's a kind of old-fashioned concept, but I'm sure you don't agree with that. No, not at all. It's a wonderful opportunity for personal and professional development. And I think that is what is at the heart of it. It's it's a wonderful way to be engaged with your community. Um, I was quite fortunate that I already had that engagement with my show society, but the amount of doors that opened up to me by being part of the showgirl um, competition was incredible. Um, like I said, I travelled all over our beautiful state. I had the opportunity to meet people from all walks of life. I was able to participate in professional development that led me to America. So I actually attended conference in America as part of my showgirl role where I was able to learn more. And I, I really thoroughly believe that I grew incredibly as a person over my what ended up being two years of showgirl from being a local entrant to a state winner I, I learned better skills for, for interviewing, for public speaking. I met incredible people and it's such a brilliant opportunity for young women to be able to engage in a different, uh, a different light that, you know, it's opportunities that you'd never be able to get in any other competition or setting. Did that competition lead you to Next Generation or were you already involved? It did lead me to Next Gen. Um, so I was involved with my local show society being that I was on the committee, the managing committee. I had my own sections where I was running competitions. However, the showgirl competition led me to meet the people who introduced me to the world of next gen. And I can honestly say some of my closest friends uh, are from next gen. And it's really opened up doors when it's come to um, my professional development as well. It led me to live an entirely different part of the state and it has led to me to be able to really present myself as a young professional in the world as well. Um, Next Generation is here to provide a voice for young people in local, regional rural communities, but it's also here to provide a voice to anyone who is interested in the agricultural movement within Australia, which is a very large movement. We're, we're a really proud country of primary producers and our ag shows are a great opportunity for them to showcase their best, but it's also a great opportunity for our local community in every aspect of the community to come together. And it yeah, strikes so. me that it's been a powerful force in encouraging the next generation to get involved in running their local shows and keep this incredible tradition alive. 
Yes, for sure. I think uh, with any community organisation, I think the worst thing that you can ever hear is, well, it's what we've always done. Fortunately, I think if you always have the same people running and in positions, then that's the the mentality that is surely to fall into place. By encouraging our young people um, and developing their skills of communication and their skills of organisation, it allows them to be able to engage with people of all walks of life and people who have been in positions and have wonderful experience um, to actually share their knowledge and, yes. and work for the team. Learn from them and be mentored by them. I mean, I've been into, obviously, my field of focus quite often when I go to a show is the cookery pavilion and, you know, meeting the judges and stewards, some of them in their 80s who've been doing it for 50 or 60 years, the wealth of knowledge these people have is extraordinary. Exactly. And I think um, so many of our young people in shows start off in the same way. They enter something in the pavilion. They, they give it a go. But I'd really like to make the suggestion that not just enter but volunteer. One of my most favourite memories growing up is um, stewarding the preserve judge at my local show. Her name is Mrs Franklin and she is an absolute legend in CWA. And the, the things that I learnt from her, not just about preserves but also just about the world, is, is something that I really cherish. In Queensland, if you consider some of the major state competitions, you have Showgirl, Rural Ambassador, you have Young Judges and Paraders, and you have the Dark Rich Fruitcake. It is serious business. But have you ever watched the judging? Yes. Oh, I love it. It's my favourite part. I absolutely love the the seriousness. But then yes. also the, the quiet murmurs when the judge simply just nods their head. It, it is <laughs> It's high drama. <laughs> it is high drama. And, uh, you know, I've had to, because in a lot of places the judging happens behind closed doors, or at least it has traditionally, I, I used to get in trouble for describing it as a bit like a secret society. If you hadn't been a steward or in a family of show cooks, you had no idea what the rules were and what the judges might be looking for because it's quite different to anything else in the way of cooking competitions apart from the, the CWA competitions. Definitely, but at the Eckhart, they do do it on a stage. Yes. Who judge the Dark Reach Fruitcake on a stage? It's very interesting. Yeah. Do people get to ask questions? They do. They do have a Q&A session and it's, it's so wonderful because it's that sharing that knowledge and it's the essence of an ag show, isn't it? And it's, it's all about a fruitcake. Thank you so much, uh, Kate, for joining me on my little podcast and for um, sharing the news of what's happening in Queensland. Let's hope that the next show season next year will be a whole different story for everybody. Bigger and better. Thank you so much, Liz. And now for this episode's recipe. It's called Afghan biscuits. And I can remember my mum making these for us when we were children. But this version of the recipe comes from Edna O'Neill, who's a bit of a legend in show cooking in Queensland. And you might think you know Edna because she actually appeared on an episode of Landline with Pip Courtney some years ago now when Pip followed my adventures researching Australia's best show cooks and I went to the Ecker. Now, 
Edna married a dairy farmer. She grew up on a dairy farm. She was the fourth of 10 children, and she spent her childhood in a small rural community not far from Mergen in the South Burnett region of Queensland. Her parents used to carry her down to the dairy as a baby and sit her in a box while they milked the cows. And she played a far more active role, of course, later on when she met and married her husband, Richie. He came off a dairy farm as well, and after they married in 1954, they settled down with their own herd of cows and raised a family of seven. Throughout these busy years, Edna developed a reputation as a keen and competitive show cook. She started out baking cakes as part of a special competition run at the show for junior farmers clubs, but she changed her focus after one of the judges told her the cakes were so good they should be in the main pavilion. So the first year she made two entries, and then like all show cooks as time went on, she got quite carried away until she was making everything on the schedule, and she competed at every show in the region. Things became truly serious in 1971 when Edna headed for the Royal Queensland show, The Ecker. It was four hours drive away, and it takes a bit of an effort to get there, so everything has to be planned down to the details, and so she can get there on time with the entries as fresh as possible. And when I wrote about her in the Australian Blue Ribbon Cookbook, at the age of 82, she was still getting up at four o'clock in the morning to make her final preparations, load the car with help from Richie, and head off to Brisbane. Richie was also very much involved. Um, He was president of the Queensland Chamber of Agriculture Societies, which is the umbrella organisation for country shows in that state. And he spent 18 years as president of his local show society. Edna was chief steward at the cookery section for about 40 years, and they both served on the committee as well that was responsible for what is the pinnacle of show cooking in Queensland, the Dark Rich Fruitcake Competition. So that's a competition that's run for finalists from 11 regions that cover the state. Edna has won it three times and been placed on numerous other occasions. So she's a very good cook. If you've been to the Ecker and you've visited the show stand run by the Queensland Chamber, you might have even tasted some of her fruitcake because she usually takes along quite a few cakes which she cuts up into pieces and sells as fundraisers. So this is her Afghan biscuit recipe. It's one that she used to make quite regularly. It's her family favourite. And when she was uh, starting out as a show cook, she claimed quite a few prizes with it. It's a pretty simple recipe. You're going to need 185 grams of butter, softened, 90 grams of caster sugar, two cups of cornflakes, crushed, one and a quarter cups of plain flour, or 185 grams if you prefer to weigh it, one tablespoon of cocoa powder, 185 grams or one and a half cups of icing sugar mixture, one tablespoon of cocoa powder, an extra teaspoon of butter softened, and two tablespoons of hot water. So, to make the biscuits, preheat the oven to moderate, that's 180 degrees Celsius uh, in a conventional oven, Grease a baking tray or line it with baking paper. Put the 185 grams of softened butter into a medium-sized mixing bowl with the 90 grams of caster sugar and using beaters, mix it until it's light and fluffy and the sugar is dissolved. Stir in the two cups of cornflakes crushed 
And I'll just clarify the measurement there. It's important, the order of the words. So you need two cups of cornflakes and then you crush them. And Edna advises don't crush them too finely until they're crumbs. You want some nice large pieces in there, so maybe about half their original size. Sift together the one and a quarter cups of plain flour and a tablespoon of cocoa powder. So stir together the mixture until it's combined. The mixture is fairly firm, so I usually finish the process with a knife. Once the mixture is combined, place it in heaped teaspoons on the prepared trays and you need to put them about three centimetres apart to allow for a little spreading. I also just gently press down on each of the biscuits, not too much, just enough to sort of flatten them a little. And you bake them in the oven for 20 minutes or until they're firm. When they're cooked, put them onto a wire rack and cool them before you ice them. And here's how you make a very simple chocolate icing. Sift together the icing sugar and the extra tablespoon of cocoa into a small bowl. Add the butter and then mix it with a little hot water, just adding a little bit at a time until you get the right smooth spreading consistency. That's the biscuit done if you're entering it in a show, but in my family we like to put a a little extra such as chopped walnuts or desiccated coconut on top. So finish them how you see fit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Country Women's Wisdom. For more information about the podcast and my books and for a copy of any of the recipes featured, please visit my website, lizharful.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook.